So, um, uh, so welcome back. Um, many of you uh, will have heard of the great Kabbalist and professor of Salamanca University, Luis de Leon, who was a conversor, uh, who was the great professor of Hebrew at um, Salamanca University. Anyway, because of that, he got on the wrong side of the Inquisition. He was giving a lecture in Salamanca University and he was arrested halfway through the, the, the lecture. And then he was held in the Inquis at the Inquis Inquisition's pleasure for several years. And um, a very smart fellow, and he managed to not get executed. And he got out, and so he went back into the lecture hall. And of course, everyone was Everyone came into the lecture hall, what's he going to say, what's he going to say? And he came up and said, as I was saying before I was interrupted, <laughs> so as Jo was saying before she was interrupted, Thank you. Yeah. Well, what I hope I was saying before coherence departed from me um, was that with Teresa's teaching on the potency, right, potency of the here and now, and her um, emphasis on doing what you can with the immediate companions who surround you and not worrying too much about the, um, the wider implications, leaving that aspect to God. But with her emphasis, uh, that emphasis of her teaching, Teresa is combining that age-old sensitivity to place that we find in Carmelite tradition with that sensitivity to the holy mountain of Mount Carmel. With this new appreciation of the power of the particular. So in Teresa's vision, not only Mount Carmel, but now every Carmelite place becomes uh, a place of potency for the Carmelite. Every locale becomes a place of apostolic mission and salvific endeavor for us. And I think Toledo was my downfall because what I wanted to say was that, that located here in Toledo this week, we're carrying out our particular interfaith enterprise within a richly fertile Carmelite place. Peter had already explored for us the history of Toledo with its rich tradition of coexistence and encounter between our faiths and explored how that makes it a redolent location um, for our time together. But that over and above that broader um, geographical setting of Toledo, we ourselves are more specifically here at the Carmelite Priory. And so Carmel, very literally, has become a sacred space for us, a sacred space in which our dialogue this week is being nurtured and brought to fruitfulness. And that because of that, Teresa would assure us that what we do together this week, the particularity of our time together, conducted in love and consecrated to God, will have ramifications and significance beyond what we see before our eyes this week. And we talked a little bit about that um, this morning. And that, of course, is really for the future, the unknown impact of, of God's providence. But that we can also look at Toledo, Carmelite place, in the other direction, so looking backwards, understanding Toledo as a distinctly Carmelite place through the lens of Teresa, through her experience of the city, and thereby to understand the resources that Toledo offers us in the here and now. 
So I'm sure you're all aware that Theresa is, of course, most typically associated with the city of Avila, her birthplace, and the city in which her reformed Carmel was, was born and her first discalced foundation at St. Joseph's established. Yet I think after Avila, it probably was Toledo, which was closest to Teresa's heart. It was the city of her ancestors. Her Jewish paternal grandfather, Juan Sanchez, had built up his cloth and silk business in the city. He'd accrued his wealth here. And finally, in 1485, under what level of duress we're not sure, had publicly aligned himself to the Christian faith. Now, of course, all those events occurred prior to Teresa's birth, but it seems at least likely that, the, that Toledo lived on in the family memory into Teresa's time. Moreover, from 1562 onwards, Teresa herself visited the city frequently. She spoke warmly of the advantages of its climate, presumably she saw it on a day like today and yesterday, <laughs> enjoyed the benefits that, this, that the climate offered her notoriously bad health. She too was a migraine sufferer. And she even encouraged her brother Lorenzo to consider settling his family here when they came back from the Indies. What's perhaps most significant though for a woman who was once famously described as a restless, disobedient and contumacious gadabout is that Teresa actually spent three quite extended stays in the city and it's through those three visits that I propose that we explore Toledo as a Carmelite and distinctly Theresian place. Okay, next slide. So Teresa's first visit to Toledo came in 1562. The Monastery of the Incarnation in Avila, in which she'd spent the first 27 years of her religious life, was overpopulated and under-resourced. And so it became the practice for sisters to spend extended periods away from the community at the invitation of wealthy benefactors, so that they might provide spiritual companionship to the benefactor while simultaneously relieving the community at home from some of the overcrowding that was going on. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm giving the sisters a break. <laughs> Somebody could have my bed for the week. And at Christmas 1561, next slide, Doña Luisa de la Terra, who was inconsolable at the recent death of her husband, requested of the Carmelite provincial that he send Teresa to stay with her at her palace in Toledo. And Teresa was to remain as her guest here for six months, right through till June of 1562. And the two formed an unlikely friendship founded on mutual regard and affection. Next slide. Teresa commenting, she was very God-fearing and so good that her abundant Christian spirit supplied what was lacking in need. While Louisa, in her turn, quickly grew deeply fond of Teresa, was comforted by her presence, and soon began to improve noticeably. Teresa tells us that the two women quickly came to converse as equals. And this reciprocal affection and regard developed despite really considerable differences in their status and circumstances. So as the daughter of the second Duke of Medellicelli, descended from the royal houses of both Spain and France, 
and the widow of one of the most rich, or one of the richest and most titled men in Castile, Doña Luisa was, as Teresa describes her, one of the most notable in the kingdom. While Teresa was the daughter of a converso family, vowed to the poverty of religious life, desirous of a new simplicity, already grappling with mystical graces, and uncertain as to their authenticity and significance. And I think this friendship between two women of such wildly different backgrounds and circumstances seems to me to be the first resource that our Carmelite place offers us. Their friendship is a friendship which transcends difference, in which the essential qualities of goodness and integrity are recognised in the midst of diversity. And that's surely going to be the basis of the friendships that we forge this week, and indeed we're already forging together, with all our differing backgrounds and traditions and experiences in this life. As Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, apologies for the pronunciation, as, as they affirm, the pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in his wisdom. And that means they must be, for us, his precious gift in our quest for fraternity. Okay, next slide. During this six-month visit, Luisa de la Ferda's Grand Palace became for Teresa not only a place of friendship, but one of dialogue too. While here, she was reacquainted with Father Garcia de Toledo, a Dominican priest who she first known back in Andalusia when he was sub-prior at the Dominican monastery there, sub-prior in 1555. Now, he'd been one of Teresa's earliest and most trusted confessors, but Teresa says that it had actually been several years since they'd last met. Father Garcia happened to come to Toledo while Teresa was here, and the two entered into a deep spiritual friendship. He reassuring her about the mystical graces she was experiencing, and she urging him to dedicate himself to a greater depth of prayer and love of God. He encouraging her to begin the difficult task of writing a definitive account of her spiritual life, and she being commissioned by the Lord to tell him, she says, some truths which without my understanding them were so apropos that they amazed him. In other words, God asked her to give him a ticking off. <laughs> it was wanted to be one of the great spiritual friendships of Teresa's life. And indeed, during one of their conversations, Teresa was so transported that she reports, next slide, a powerful rapture came over me, which almost made me lose my senses. I saw Christ with awesome majesty and glory, showing great happiness over what was taking place. I'm not suggesting that our dialogue together this week need necessarily be accompanied by such elevated mystical phenomena. Raptures are not strictly necessary, but you know, feel free. <laughs> but in this calm-like place, Teresa assures us of two things. First, that those seeking God need one another, that our spiritual companionship will nurture, encourage, and enlighten us in our common quest for God. As Teresa tells us, next slide, 
I would counsel those who practice prayer to seek, at least in the beginning, friendship and association with other persons having the same interest. <clears throat> this is something most important. I believe that they who discuss these joys and trials for the sake of this friendship with God will benefit themselves and those that hear them. And secondly, Teresa's Toledan experience reveals that such converse is not simply for our benefit, but that it brings joy to God, that he delights when his children come together to speak of him. Though unseen and unheard, he is powerfully present among us. So she says, thus he told me, this is Christ speaking to her, thus he told me, and wanted me to see clearly that he was always present in conversations like these, and how much he is pleased when persons so delight in speaking of him. And I think that maybe speaks to some of the conversation we started this morning about, about our um, spiritual conversations this week. Now dialogue is, of course, more than the rehearsing of shared views between like-minded friends. We've already noted that gift of plurality and difference. And I think we may, this week, need to be stretched and challenged by the ideas and the convictions to which we're exposed during our conversations together. And that, of course, was Teresa's experience too. Teresa came to Toledo in 1562 with the notion of a reformed Carmelite existence already germinating within her and with some preliminary negotiations underway. Always good to start the new priory before you tell your primus. <laughs> it was all kind of bubbling away for her. While staying with Louisa de la Ferda, the two were visited by a third woman, the Beata Maria de Jesus, who was likewise in the process of establishing a new community, this time in Granada, similarly designed to replicate the primitive ideals of the Carmelite mountain. Maria had indeed already sold all her possessions and walked barefoot to Rome to obtain the necessary patents. Maria's commitment to religious poverty shocked Teresa out of her tepidity. I think this is the only time in Teresa's life when she can be described as tepid. She, she admits, next slide, until I had spoken to her, it hadn't been brought to my notice that our rule, before it was mitigated, ordered that we owned nothing. Nor had I been about to found the house without an income. My intention had been that we have no worries about our needs. Teresa's encounter with the holy woman of Granada profoundly challenged her, and moreover converted her to become the ardent, ardent champion of poverty that she was to remain for the rest of her life. Our conversations too may also challenge and provoke, stimulate and surprise. And like Teresa, may we be given the wisdom and the poverty of spirit to change and grow. So Teresa's next extended visit to Toledo was not to take place for another seven years, so uh, 1569, when she returned to establish the fifth of her discalced carmels in the city. Now, as with so many of her foundations, the process did not run entirely to plan. The cathedral chapter, 
who's just been there, was opposed to granting the license. His son-in-law, who was negotiating on behalf of the benefactor, was obstreperous, and it was proving impossible to identify a suitable property for the new community to occupy. So Teresa's solution to the first problem, the, the difficult men in the cathedral, was to, for, to seek out the archbishop's deputy, the ecclesiastical governor, and to summon him to a meeting at a church close to his home. She basically goes and sits in the church and sends for him. And while such a desire for face-to-face -face dialogue may well deserve emulation, it's unlikely we're going to succeed if we imitate the rest of her methodology. She tells us, next slide, when I, told him, when I saw him, I told him that it was hard to accept the fact that there were women who wanted to live with so much austerity, perfection, and withdrawal from the world, while those who would bear nothing of this but lived in comfort wanted to hinder these works that were of such service to the Lord. These, and many other things, I told him with a great determination which was given me by the Lord. The governor's heart was so moved that before I left, he gave me the license. <laughs> I think that's a lesson from the browbeating school of dialogue. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting we should necessarily imitate Teresa on that. Having obtained by such determined colloquy the necessary license, Teresa still lacked a suitable property. It was eventually found for them by an impoverished student, not rich but very poor, as she describes him, whom the sisters had initially dismissed with an amusement bordering on ridicule, since, as Teresa tells us, the clothes this man had on were not the kind one would wear when going to speak with discounted nuns. So I'm not sure what you should all be wearing, but anyway, it has to be the right clothes. To their astonishment, the poor youth Alonso de Andrada had, within 48 hours of this sartorially ill-judged interview, returned with the keys of a house so nice that the nuns would stay in it for a whole year. Next slide. As Teresa was ruefully to concede, frequently when I reflect on this foundation, I am amazed by the designs of God. So the capacity of Teresa, by whatever means, to single-handedly bring the entire Toledan ecclesiastical hierarchy round to her way of thinking, and the ability of the poor youth Andrada to succeed where wealthier, better connected property seekers had failed, lead us to trust that no project ordained by God is futile or will end in failure. Let us, too, put our trust in his designs confident that despite our limitations and shortcomings, he will bring from this week all that he desires. Now, there's a couple of further incidents concerning the Toledo Foundation, which may also speak eloquently to our current enterprise. Having rented the newly found property, it became necessary to occupy it immediately. And the sisters, together with Andrada and a collection of workmen, arrived at dusk of the same day and spent the entire night getting everything ready. At some point, somewhere before dawn, and in an attempt to convert one of the downstairs rooms into a chapel, 
they began to make a door through one of the walls. The consequent pounding provoking an entirely understandable level of terror in the building's other occupants. A group of women, who Teresa tells us were both still in bed and blissfully unaware of the new tenancy arrangements and the nocturnal Carmelite endeavours proceeding around them. In a subsequent moment of contrite reflection, Teresa comments, next slide, afterward I realised how poorly we had proceeded. I sincerely trust that our time together won't be marked by such inadequate regard for one another's sensitivities, but may we each bring to the table the humility born of Theresian self-knowledge and the contrition born of the need to seek forgiveness for the hurts and injustices that each of our religions has over the centuries wrought on the other. Next slide. A final incident from this visit to Toledo similarly bears relating. Flushed with the successful account, uh, outcome of her dialogue with the governor, but still lacking at this point a property, Theresa did what all women did and went shopping. <laughs> she had, as she estimates, three or four ducats to her name. And she says, with these, I bought two paintings done on canvas, for I didn't have anything with an image to put on the altar, two straw mattresses, and a woolen blanket. It was March after all. I love this insight into the workings of a saint's mind. The combination of the religious and the, and the rational, the sublime and the sensible, something to stimulate devotion and something to ensure a decent night's sleep. May our time together similarly be a time of the profound and the practical. May we meet in our common search for God's meaning but may we also rejoice in more down-to-earth details over our meals, in our visits, in our relaxing together over Jason's beer. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> okay, next slide. Theresa's final extended visit to Toledo came in the year 1576, and now the city became for her a crucible of suffering. <clears throat> In December of the previous year, Teresa, in Seville for the establishing of a foundation there, was denounced to the city's inquisitors. While the growing ill-feeling, confusion, hurt and general muddle within the Carmelite order finally spilled over and the general chapter ordered her to suspend all her founding activity and retire to one of her monasteries in Castile. Teresa arrived in Toledo in June 1576 and was to sojourn in forced inactivity in the city for just over a year, although it would then be a further two years before she could resume her founding mission. For now, the future of her discussed initiative hung in the balance. Teresa was held in suspicion by many, reviled by others, and the worst was yet to come with the imprisonment and cruel treatment of John of the Cross also here in Toledo at the end of 1577. Teresa might well have been justified in giving way to despair, disillusionment, or simply resigning defeat. But Teresa's spiritual life had, since 1572, been on an entirely new plane. With the experience of what she calls spiritual marriage, or lasting union with God, 
Theresa now lived the fact that in the midst of external storms, the soul at its centre resides in the presence of God, sustained by him and delighting in his company. With the equanimity that this permits, Theresa settled down to life in retirement, exclaiming almost gleefully, right now I am out without any trials. I don't know where this will end up. They have given me a cell set, a set apart like a hermitage, and very cheerful, and my health is good. I might almost imagine she's here on retreat rather than on trial. Witnessing to the unimaginable peace that complete trust in God's providence bestows, taking the story of Moses as her inspiration, Teresa remained confident that no one has power to cause harm if the Lord does not wish it. Nor was this just to be a time of idle relaxation or recuperation. Making the most of her renewed health and the time and space in which to write, Teresa set about composing the account of her foundations and drawing up the legislative document describing the process to be undertaken by the visitator when examining the monasteries. That was all in October 1576 within just a few months of her arrival in Toledo, when Teresa might have been forgiven for hoping that the situation would be quickly resolved. The following summer, life was feeling more difficult. Her health had deteriorated, the book of her life remained with the Inquisition, and Teresa had received the burdensome instruction from her spiritual directors to write a new account of prayer. As she crumbles at the start of the interior castle, I have been experiencing now for three months such great noise and weakness in my head that I found it a hardship even to write unnecessary business matters. The Lord has not given me so much virtue that my nature doesn't feel strong aversion towards such a task. Of course, having grizzled about the assignment ahead, Teresa took up her quill and produced the high point of her mystical writing, that great spiritual treatise of the interior castle, documenting the soul's inward journey to union with God at the centre of its being. As John would do subsequently, in the darkness of suffering, Teresa produced a work of such luminosity that it continues to sparkle with inspiration to this day. What then might Toledo, as a place of Carmelite suffering, say to us? Well, like Teresa, those engaged in the endeavour of interfaith dialogue are in for the long haul. It's now nearly 60 years since the Catholic Church made its first somewhat tentative overture to those of other religions in the conciliar document Nostra Aetate. It's fair to say, I think, that subsequent progress has been painstakingly slow and not entirely untroubled. Teresa, no stranger to trouble herself, would remind us that no God-given task is likely to proceed without challenges and difficulties, obstacles and obstructions. God somehow doesn't seem to offer his servants a struggle-free existence in which to carry out his mission. Yet, in her great Toledan masterpiece, Teresa assures us of two things. First, that trials are incapable of dislodging the soul which resides in the company of God. United with him, held in his providence, 
and sustained by his presence, we can hold fast to a peace which endures amid all affliction. As Teresa admits that there are trials and sufferings and that at the same time the soul is at peace is a difficult thing to explain. But that is the Toledan testimony that Teresa gives us. Secondly, Teresa's own intimate experience of trials, both interior and exterior, both here in Toledo and elsewhere, convinced her that their task is not to dishearten or to disillusion, but more gloriously to expand our hearts with a greater desire for God and for his purposes. Next slide. All these sufferings are meant to increase one's desire to enjoy the spouse. And his majesty, as one who knows our weakness, is enabling the soul through these afflictions and many others to have the courage to be joined with so great a Lord and to take him as its spouse. Here, in this Carmelite place, may we too be inflamed with the love of God and with the desire for him and with the courage to seek him. And in the midst of all the challenges that interfaith dialogue presents, may our hearts likewise be expanded both to welcome him and perhaps even more importantly, to welcome him in one another. Go on. Another question. Uh, just to say that it was a beautiful way of uh, bringing us mm. together through the uh, right into Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much. It felt like just watching a movie. Even though there wasn't a movie going on, that's what it felt like. It's just playing off in my mind with you telling it. Beautiful. Uh, yes, I just wonder if it's um, an anecdote that is rooted in any historical source that when Teresa was having one of her terrible trials, and she was somewhere in Spain and it was terrible weather and the coach was yeah. always, Oh, it's Bono. It's, no, it's not. It's, oh. it's apocryphal, but, but we all love it because it's so true. It's well, so then. authentically Teresa. Well, please, can you share it? Can you can you share it? Yeah. Okay, so she, I think the carriage is overturned or is stuck in the mud yeah. and she's been thrown out into the river and she's rotten, she's irritable. And, um, and she turns to the Lord and she says, Well, if this is how you treat your friends, I can see why you've got so few of them. <laughs> well, what I've heard is probably even more apocryphal, but I heard that she was calling out to God and saying, Oh Lord, why are you treating me like this? And he says to her, This is how I treat my friends. And she says, No wonder, Lord, you have so few. Equally good. I think that. that that ease of dialogue between the yeah. two of them is so authentic, she's constantly having a go at him. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a great book which has about, about 150 apocryphal stories attributed to Teresa. <laughs> One of which is, you have no hands on earth now except mine, which yeah. is she never said either. <laughs> well, so let's give you one more round of applause.